For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Maybe you all know Sophia, but Sophia DeVita is our uh, assistant Tenzo at Ancient Dragons Gate, and also has been our UC Divinity School intern. Uh, we have lots of connections with the University of Chicago, and I think you're our fifth or sixth or something like that UC Divinity School intern, so double lineage. So thank you for giving your talk tonight. Of course. Um, hello. Good night. Good evening. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I'm no longer the intern. I went in, or in case you don't know. Oh, Former intern. But yeah, I wanted to thank Tugin so much for asking me to speak again and for each of you um, who's here tonight for the opportunity to share about the things I've been thinking about recently in regards to practice. Um, Again, I wrote what I'd like to say, which I'm learning is not the standard form of Dharma talks, um, but it's my way. So I am very much uh, grateful for your experimentation with me. Um, and in a similar vein, um, as Tegan just said, I'm from the University of Chicago Divinity School. I'm, I'm in religious studies and I study philosophy of religion. And anyway, that kind of came into my talk, like that, that lens that I use um, in that realm of my life kind of came into what I was writing. So I also uh, ask for your you know, bearing with me in that. And um, yeah, so I'm going to talk about, um, so I mean, in that, so in that general sense, I'm kind of filtering some of what I'm, I want to say through the lens of somebody who studies religion. Um, and so I'm going to talk about Zazen. I'm going to talk about Zen practice. But I'm also going to talk about practice in a more general way in a way that I think can be read within a Buddhist um, perspective, but it's not limited to it also. So I'm going to talk primarily about practice and forms and about the discipline they require and that they help us to cultivate. And I'm going to talk also about play and experimentation and the relationship between this play and the discipline our practices require. And ultimately, I'm going to try to weave all of this together and talk a little bit about compassion um, which I think is the ground and the soil that gives rise to our practice and that constitutes our practice. Um, I was reflecting recently with some people in this room about the fact that when you first learn about sitting, people will try to describe it to you. But it's very clear from their descriptions that it's not really something that can be described. It's both personal and practical. We genuinely do not know how it is for others. And we cannot truly show someone what it will be like for them. We must do it ourselves in order to find our seat, as they say. I remember when I first sat, I had the thought that Zazen is an ocean. Not in the sense that I felt myself enter into the ocean of pure awareness or anything like that. But in the sense that the ocean is very, very old, very, very deep. I had the sense that Zazen is deep time and would be something that I could only learn about through the repetition of coming back, building a relationship with it over time. 
coming to see myself reflected in its depths. I believe that we can find this glimmer of deep time in all things, which is an insight I find confirmed by the notion of work practice that we share in Zen. For me, the idea of work practice unbinds Zazen from its separation or its purity, showing that the kind of attention and awareness Zazen supports is beyond any particular form or posture, beyond any particular tradition or teaching. It can be cultivated anywhere, by anyone. As Dogen puts it rather poetically in the Kokyo chapter of the Shogunzo, quote, remember, there are sutras which have changed into trees and rocks, and there are good counselors who are spreading the Lotus Sutra in fields and in villages. They too may be around mirror. Yellow paper on a red rod here and now is around mirror. Who could think that only the master was prodigious? Dogen's sentiment here unbinds the teachings from the hierarchies that we find within tradition, master versus student, abbot versus monk, etc., but also from the hierarchies across traditions. Or perhaps it even challenges the boundedness of the idea of a tradition in the first place. Dogen's meaning here undoes the specificity of Zen, allowing it to mingle and resonate with all expressions of wisdom as it continually and uniquely presences across time and place again and again. This unjealous attitude we often find in the philosophies of Zen originally attracted me to it. And in this, I found confirmed something deep that I always felt intuitively. That is, I know deeply and without any need of explanation that when I talk to my friend who's a runner, to my dad who's an actor, to my partner who's a tattooer, that they're all finding the same thing amongst these practices. In fact, I believe that I could recognize this ocean in Zazen myself because I had previously found it in reading and writing philosophy, which is probably what led me to practice in the first place. What's common to all of these forms is that each requires us and invites us to keep returning, to keep rehearsing, training, practicing, sitting. In some ways, the whole wisdom (coughs) is that we never move past this preparatory work, this beginning work of merely practicing. I'm always trying to describe this to students of philosophy, It's really not so much about getting it or doing it right, elusive concepts anyway, who gets to decide, but rather it's about the commitment to returning with curiosity again and again. And it is only there that we will be able to enter into a genuine kind of playfulness with our practice. As Dogen puts it in his five-part approach to Zazen, as translated and cited by Taigen in his book, Zen Questions, Sometimes, within the gates and gardens of the monastery, I offer my own style of practical instruction, simply wishing you all to disport and play freely with spiritual penetration. That is, the free play that Zazen offers is only something that we can reach if we keep coming back with discipline, in Dogen's case, to the rigidity of monastic rhythm. We can find it in anything but we cannot find it without this discipline of practice. 
without this coming back, which offers a way through time to experience the deep time contained within these practices. This coming back is not easy. It often hurts and is uncomfortable, both physically and mentally. It would be hard to say that sitting long periods of zazen, running a marathon, or reading dense and sprawling sentences written hundreds of years ago feels good in the moment. That's not really why we practice. When I was at Tassahara last month, I was talking with a student about her experience of the practice periods. She said that even when it's the hardest thing in the world to believe, the truth is that the schedule, often grueling and relentless, is there to hold you. You can rail against the schedule, take everything out on it, blame it, be angry at it, but it's genuinely there to take care of you. I would suggest that this is the wisdom behind all of the forms in our traditions. They are there to hold us, to allow us to, in Dogen's words again, disport and play freely with spiritual penetration. Yet this idea of the forms that guide us and hold us point to more than just an individual's personal discipline, their personal practice. It also points to the importance of the collective, the community in our practices. What I mean is that our relationship to the forms always includes our relations with others, both because we practice together here and now, and because the very existence and endurance of the forms points to the work of others who came before us. Our knowledge of the forms is our interrelation with community, with tradition, with collectivity, with history. This is partly what I mean when I say that by practicing the forms in time, as a way of ordering our experience of time, we get to greet a kind of deep time that is contained in them. Each individual expression of a form calls forth the whole history of its myriad expressions, bonding itself to the chains of inheritance that make up a tradition. We are always relating to forms, to rituals, to tradition, whether we are taught by the most institutionally regulated program there is, or we're self-taught, a collection of resources we found on YouTube, in books, personal conversations, psychedelic trips. Despite the austerity of tradition's exterior, its official teachings and bureaucratic systems that help to order and maintain its continuity, the forms are in fact and in practice shared and passed down always by a whisper, each of us explaining it slightly differently from the next person, each of us an amalgamation of our own unique experiences, experiments, trials, errors. I bet you will notice this in your own experience, if you recall any time you've ever been taught a form. We can think of Oryoki training or Doan training, but we could also think about being trained at work in the details of a job responsibility or going to the gym and being taught how to perform an exercise properly and so on. You will notice, especially if you're being taught the same form by more than one person, that everyone's method is slightly different. Now, I would suggest 
that the fact that we all teach each other the forms slightly differently, that we all got our training from different sources and authorities, and that we each are our own individual unique selves every time we show up to practice, however interrelated, is the reason that communal forms are very rarely practiced perfectly. Sometimes this lack of perfection, this drift between each of our personal expressions of the forms, can lead to a feeling of lack of coordination, lack of harmony, which is only made sadder by the fact that it resulted from an attempt at coordination and harmony. This drift can make us feel disconnected, isolated, on our own, out of joint. Sometimes we can identify this out of jointness with the deflation of spiritual energy. The spell is broken. And what once felt like it could take us out of our ordinary mundane experience of time and lead us into deep time now only feels like a kind of hyper mundanity. We feel like a fraud, a bad actor. We feel cynical about human rituals. Yet I want to suggest that it is precisely this drift, this lag between us, that allows the forms, the freedom to change to adapt, to be modified by each passing generation. It is the drift that both allows for and is the cause of the whisper that takes place between each of us. This whisper that opens up gates rather than guards them, that lets us in the back door and has compassion for where we've been and where we're going. That is, it is this drift inherent to the practice of tradition and to the rigidity of forms that ironically guards tradition against this very rigidity, against itself. As Aristotle says in his Meditation on Time of the mysterious nature of the present, it is always together and together, yet always other and other. This drift between us, this inevitable lack of coordination, is then perhaps the only glimpse we get in this life of true, perfect democracy. And yet it also reveals the inherent democracy that is already there at the heart of all things, all the time. The drift is the self-generating and generous proof against any final solidification of doctrine, against any totalitarianism. With the invocation of democracy and totalitarianism, I myself have drifted here into the language that the legacies of Western philosophy would use to describe this phenomenon, which I originally learned in the post-war writings of thinkers like Emmanuel Levinas and Jacques Derrida. They find in the shattering of trauma this wise teaching about our interconnection and our separation, this crack in all things that we were talking about last week in Kathy's talk on going to pieces without falling apart. It is this crack, this gap, this drift that marks our difference, our separation, our heartache, but that also marks our interconnection, our malleability, the relaxing of the boundaries of the self that we and all things, systems, ideas, forms, traditions are fundamentally capable of. In fact, that we cannot help but do. Clearly, 
This idea is in many ways the center point of Buddhism, which is designed from the start to lead us to question the solidity of all foundations. If, as I have suggested, the language of democracy is a common way to get at this idea in the context of continental philosophy, I think that a way that it is talked about in Buddhism and in our tradition in particular is through the language of compassion. Recall how the student at Tassajara said it so intuitively. The forms are there to hold you, to take care of you. The fact that our forms eventually break down, and in fact, once we look closely, we realize that they themselves are actually only a collection of that breaking down, that drift and that whisper, is the expression of compassion and of emptiness, which seem now to be two ways of saying the same thing. We not only are fundamentally capable of compassion, we cannot help but be compassion. We are it at our base. It is what makes up our non-substance of self, the non-substance of all things. Compassion is that which allows us to loosen the boundaries of the self, to view what we interact with, be it a form or a being or a tradition or a teaching, within this lens of emptiness. Maybe we can bring this into the concrete again in order to think about it another way and to end this talk. I'm often confronted with this inherent compassion that the world is made up of when I'm sitting zazen with others. Often, we think we're trying to cultivate a room in which everyone is settled, in which everyone is grounded. These are, in many ways, the holy experiences that we live for, and we remember them with intensity when they happen. These are those rare moments when the forms might be said to be practiced nearly perfectly, when we are nearly harmonious and coordinated. But when we have the experience of sitting next to someone who is not settled, or of sitting next to someone who is settled when we are not settled, which, let's face it, is most of our ordinary experience, we can see with clarity Zazen's nature as compassion. It is in these moments of disharmony when we find ourselves sitting steady in order to offer that steadiness to another, or when we find someone else offering us grounding by sharing their practice with us, that we can truly glimpse Zazen's fundamental compassion. In these ordinary moments, we ourselves are offered into this circle of giving and receiving. And we are taught of the gift of compassion that underlies all our experiences. Through practice, I come to realize that I am practicing out of compassion in order to learn how to offer this compassion to myself so that I can offer it to others. And I'm taught how to do this only by the compassion that others have offered me. It is here at the edge of this circle, that we begin to fall into the forgetting of self, that we begin to become truly selfless, an expression of pure compassion. I don't have any specific questions, just curious what comes up for any of you related or otherwise.
Sophia, a very beautiful, thoughtful offering. <laughs> I was wondering when you were thinking of time, you know, how form and ritual connects us to the past and to each other, but I also feel it connects us to the future. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like we're always in anticipation mm -hmm. of the future. And that's like, I, I have anxiety, so maybe I'm more like that than others, but I tend to think of it as like a fundamental human position that we're kind of always that, that same lag or, or drift that I'm talking about also happens with us and our future selves. And, you know, like we have to do that in order to survive in some deep ways. Like we need to be able to imagine other selves and other possible ways that we can be. And that's really creative. Um, but it's also really like, painful and can be super in my experience um something that really weighs me down mm -hmm. and i think like rituals often come in to help us to discipline our time into these different kinds of temporality um so that we can be present in them and come to i, I guess it's like you're kind of realizing that time is very malleable and very different depending on what you do. And I think in my experience, yeah, it's, it's easy for me to get caught in this kind of like thinking about the future. That's not actually a cultivating of it. And I, I do think that in our rituals, like we are cultivating it in an authentic way together and we're more able to make those decisions when we're, in this kind of kind of being held by a practice which I don't, and that was kind of a roundabout answer mm -hmm. uh, you talked about this tension between form um, being something that you give yourself to and trust into when you don't have much to hold on to it but at the same time kind of this, this control that can take over rather than expressing. So there is this tension that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And it made me think that with creative activities, sometimes I feel the same because constraints can lead to freedom. And when I have constraints, I am at my most creative, whereas total freedom is not. I think Suzuki Roshi talks about even in my beginner's mind, you know, for controlling the herd, rather but the herd can be also ourselves and our ego, right? Ourselves, like the delivery of that. How do you see or distinguish that, you know, do you have any bells that ring <laughs> when, when form becomes control for yourself and vice versa? Mm -hmm. how, how do you feel about that? Is there a line that gets crossed <laughs> or, or signal you to? It's a lovely question. Yeah, I think... Um, that that line like is the fundamental mystery mm. and we never we there's no way to apply a rubric that says the difference between good medicine and bad medicine you know and but there's a difference right there's clearly a difference when i'm running every day because i'm gonna be mad at myself if i don't 
and it turns into a weird form of control that actually is like now a hyper place for me to fail or succeed at something. Then I've, I've taken it from its place of being good medicine and I've it kind of I've forced it into this drug like relationship. And I think all of our, all of our practices are kind of that. I really see them and because they're ritual and they're looping and they're temporal structures, like I really see them in terms of these rhythms of how we go about our day and how all things are on these like rhythmic patterns that we, that all have their own orbit and strength and gravity to them. And we like come into contact with these practices and get swept up by them. You know, the whole point is that they have a power beyond our individual power, which is why we're, we're doing them because we recognize the power that they have, you know? And I think, yeah, I think it's, yeah, the fundamental question every day of our lives that we wake up and we say, like, how am I treating this practice and how is this practice treating me? And what do I do that makes it, makes both of us, me and the practice, constrain each other into being something too rigid? And, but I think that there's no way to get out of that. Like, I think that that's the fundamental tension. It must be both potentially deeply democratic and both potentially deeply totalitarian. Like it has that, I think it's just the nature of it, but. Thank you. And I also thank you for giving the gravity and orbit metaphor mm. for that, because I often think about gravity when my butt is on the pillow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the orbit of practice that my butt gets. <laughs> Interesting. Thank you. Um, uh, an interesting, I don't know, maybe tension that occurs to me is that, so when, when I was at Tassahar with you, one of the things that I loved most was the schedule and just how incredibly um, rigid and structured it was, even, even though it was relatively light for Tassahar's standards. And for me, that was really good for my ego because I had to just totally <laughs> give up my ego and then, uh, you know, subjugate myself to this uh, schedule in a way that felt really good and also um, ego-bruising in, in a productive way. Uh, and I think, I think forms are like that, you know, you have to ring the bells at, at the proper times so that the bells are to be rung, not that it would feel like it doesn't matter what your opinion on that is. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering how you might talk about the, that type of rigidity and the way that that helps us let go of our ego versus zazen, which has no structure other than a sitting posture. There's no exercises to be done. It's just there's no right way to do it. There's no wrong way to do it. Um, and how that freedom is maybe this this dichotomy between the freedom and zazen, the, the structure form, and how they're both helping us to let go of our egos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting and kind of difficult question. I think I think that zazen in many ways is like described as this almost like a pure form of of how ritual works where like you know we learn i think of a lot of these as like learning a language and so you know the reason that we have to have discipline with them in the beginning 
it's like you can't find your voice as a writer if you've never written before, right? Like it's going to take it being hard. You can't sew and feel comfortable and like expressing yourself in sewing without going back to it again and again and struggling in it. Um, and so I think that that free playfulness is something that we, we gain access to when we have a level of fluency, but ultimately that level of fluency kind of means the point where you realize it's not about being fluent. Um, which I think Zazen is like, just like this kind of concentrated form of like, it's all contained in that, which we'd rarely hear with a lot of our other practices. And I remember thinking that about like, literally about language learning when I was, um, last summer I had started studying German from no knowledge of German through a reading course that you only focused on reading. And it was really weird. And ultimately I didn't learn that much German, but what it did was it, it really interestingly like showed me that my idea that like I have to learn so much of this language before I can say that I'm learning the language or that I'm practicing it is like so silly. And it showed me the interconnection of German and English and all of these languages that I'm always swimming in and made me realize like this kind of like, you're so silly. That's so egotistical to get in your way and say, I can't learn this because I don't know all like I'm not fluent in like what a silly way to approach practice like that's not what this is this is like learning here and there and here and there and I think Zazen like is that but I also think you still need to get over I mean maybe maybe you all entered Zazen like without any self-judgment ever but I (laughs) in my experience I, I, I even though it is this playful practice I have imposed these rules on myself um even though but i think it's a wonderful riddle riddle because it starts you with that like you begin with that okay this isn't about fluency this isn't about mastery and then you're sitting in that and i think a lot of other forms that we're taught we're we are it's the opposite we're being told that it's about mastery and we have to come to discover that it's playful thank you so you feel you feel that things like reading the bells are you have to develop, as you said, some fluency in order to realize that it's not at all about that. Right. It's similar to Zazen. It's a lot to chew on. Thank you. <laughs> Sophia, thank you for really a, a wonderful Dharma uh, talk. But I wanted to comment a little bit on the form of giving a Dharma talk <laughs> because you sort of apologized at the beginning for having written it all out. And and, um, uh, Norman Fisher, for example, who's in our, many is always writes out as far as I know all of his talks. Mm -hmm. I have occasionally written out parts of my talks, but usually it's like just notes that I riff on. But I want to encourage you to continue writing out all your talks if you feel like it, Mm -hmm. because this is a way in which I didn't feel like you were just reading. There was a mm-hmm. there was a uh, a play, mm-hmm. and though it was all not so. There's lots of ways of doing things. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much. A wonderful talk. Thank you. Thank you.